Welcome to Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast program is uh, this podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our members um, as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Lisa Greenhill, and I am the Associate Executive Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. And we are really excited about tonight's program. Tonight, we're going, our show is called Sexual Orientation, Gender Identity, and the Job Search. And we have two great speakers tonight. The first is Natalie Wynn, Assistant Director of the North Carolina State Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, and Transgender Center. And we are also joined uh, by our friend and colleague here, Aiden Powell, Program Coordinator at the Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, and Queer Center at Purdue University in Indiana. Hi. Hi. Hello. Welcome. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Thank yeah. you for joining us. And a special shout out to uh, colleagues uh, Colleen Cipriani at Purdue and uh, um, Jenna in the Career Center and Alan Kennedy at NC State for um, putting me in touch with Natalie and Aiden. So um, shout out to them. <laughs> so <laughs> thanks for joining us. So tell us, before we jump right in, um, why don't we start with Aiden. Aiden, why don't you tell us a little bit about your role at Purdue? Yeah, um, so I'm the program coordinator um, at the LGBTQ Center here at Purdue, and we do a variety of activities, um, everything that ranges from education to advocacy and support uh, for students, staff, and faculty. Um, we do a lot of education through our Safe Zone training program, as well as providing some smaller training programs or guided conversations with uh, student organizations and offices. We do a lot of one-on-one -on -one, um advocacy and support work with students in particular, but also staff and faculty. Um, and I also love the fact that Purdue is a land-grant organization, a land-grant university, so we get to also work across the state as well, um, educating about LGBTQ inclusion, um, both on an individual basis, but also on an organizational basis. Great, wow. And Natalie at NC State. Yes. So uh, NC State is also a land-grant institution, and uh, we do a variety of the same things that Aiden is doing at uh, his institution, but we also have some uh, different support groups and student support groups, such as our GOBT Community Alliance that meets every week. We have QPOC, which is Queer People of Color. We have OSTEM, which is actually, actually a national organization that we have a local chapter here. Uh, because we are a STEM institution and we're also uh, heavily influenced by our agricultural and agricultural education. Um, we st first started out that way. Uh, we've been around since 2006 and uh, we do a variety of different programs and services. We also do things such as volunteer internship and practicum uh, for a variety of different majors. And so we're really trying to hit on their social justice and intersectional identity needs um, and try to broaden the range and the scope of, well, this is not just your LGBT identity, but there's LGBT and other factors such as your race, your ability, socioeconomic class, etc. 
Great, thank you. So uh, this topic tonight, again, uh, sexual orientation, gender identity, and the job search came about. Um, I gave a presentation at the American Veterinary Medical Association last year on some research I'd done um, at, um, uh, at here at AAVMC focusing on climate specifically for LGBT students a few years ago. And um, as a result of that presentation, I had a number of career counselors from our member institutions reach out to me, and they were really interested in um, thinking about um, this population and um, concerns around the job hunt. And so I thought that this would be a really great topic for the podcast um, to really kind of um, tease through a number of issues, but also uh, it turns out that the, the topic is very timely as um, state legislatures um, continue to pass, um, frankly, hostile um, legislation um, towards our um, LGBT friends and colleagues. And so, um, so, so I want to kind of get, dive in here. Um, it's graduation time, um, certainly not just for veterinary students, but for um, collegiate students in general. So um, what kinds of concerns do you typically see um, for um, LGBT students um, as they begin their job search? Um, well, I've been doing LGBT work now for um, about seven years or so. I first started a nonprofit, but I also worked in web design and insurance. And I worked in a variety of different other things other than LGBT stuff. Um, and the thing that I, I saw commonly for not only myself, but also for other students was whether or not to include any LGBT extracurricular activities on the resume, um, if they did any volunteer work with anything that was LGBT related. Um, and then also, you know, the interview process, like what, uh, you know, the most common question for those who are gender not conforming, like myself or trans, is, you know, um, how, how do I navigate expressing my gender or expressing who I am at the interview uh, without, you know, fear of coming off awkward or, or being um, disingenuous, right? Uh, and then another common fear is also coming out at work, uh, particularly if you're working in a smaller company or a smaller organization or out in the sticks of somewhere, um, right? Uh, and also, you know, the fact that we are, we do have legislation. Uh, I know it's been in the news a lot, but North Carolina just recently passed HB2, uh, which basically negated all city and countywide uh, inclusive protective ordinances for employment, housing, and, and access. Um, so, unfortunately, I've been navigating these conversations for a while, and now I'm navigating again. But those are the most common questions that seem to come up. Um, so, so um, what advice, I'm assuming that you're hearing the same type of thing, what advice are you giving students? Uh, well, was this for Natalie or Aiden? I'm sorry. Aiden. <laughs> okay. Um, for us, when we talk to students, a lot of times it's, uh, some of our students are very, very out about who they are on campus, um, which is really great. and. Um, now they're thinking about, well, I'm going to this new place where um, I don't know the environment as well as I had hoped, right? Um, one thing that we try to do with students when they come to us with issues maybe on campus about inclusion is we try to do side-by-side um, -side advocacy with them. So for students who maybe are in a building where they don't have a gender-inclusive restroom, for instance, and they want one, um, there are procedures in place at the university to make sure that they have access to a gender-inclusive restroom in their building, but instead of me doing it without them 
present or participating in the process, I do bring them along with me. Um, we go to meetings if we need to go to meetings or I copy them on email so they can have examples of language, knowing who to contact, um, how to advocate for themselves. That way when they leave Purdue, um, if they are in the place where they have to do it again, um, that they know how to do it and maybe also know how to guide their HR professionals through it because um, even in this day and age, um, HR professionals are still learning laws and policies, how to best advocate for people. And so it's what we try to do is teach students how to do it for themselves as much as possible. Um, and I think that's part of leadership. But one thing that I have students uh, that are really concerned about, we have a lot of students who end up working for Fortune 500 or Fortune 1000 companies. Um, and so they're, they don't even know how to start looking for an inclusive employer, right? What are... Um, how to look for inclusive non-discrimination policies at an employer or city or state city or, or county ordinances if those are available or inclusive state laws. Um, those I think are things we try to guide them through as much as possible or get them access to resources. We're very very fortunate to have a career center here on campus that is very knowledgeable about these things as well so we're not their only point of contact but just from my perspective helping them understand law and policy um, or understanding how benefits work. I think is another piece that they have a lot of questions about. Sure. Um, you know, this this issue, um, I know in my research of veterinary students, I find that um, this anxiety um, in the third year really starts to ramp up, particularly as they're about, as students are about to do um, their clinical rotations, um, and so they may find themselves in um, a new environment every you know, a few weeks or so, and that can be pretty jarring, frankly, for any student. It's a pretty grueling year. Um, but then for um, some of our students who particularly, they are working in very small practices um, where there may be only one or two professionals working there. Um, that person handles everything. It's an ambulatory practice and your office is in the truck. Um, you know, it, it becomes a kind of close quarter kind of situation that causes and provokes a lot of anxiety amongst students. So um, are there things that, you know, what kind of coaching or guidance might either of you give students that are, um, you know, one, preparing for those kinds of rotations, and two, looking to work in those rotations. And so, you know, those those rotations also um, are more frequently our rural rotations. Um, and, you know, those those areas may stereotypically be pretty um, um, challenging um, for students who um, are gender nonconforming or um, otherwise LBGT. <clears throat> Aiden, do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? <laughs> uh, if you want to start, I, that would be great. Okay. Um, so, I, you know, I often forget that um, from my own, I always, I always speak from my own perspective. I don't try to overgeneralize. So from my own perspective, there was a time where I could pass, like pass as a uh, cisgender woman. I clearly can't anymore. Uh, but... During those times, it was very interesting because it was very interesting to hear people like say homophobic or transphobic things, right? Uh, but then when I no longer could pass, I had this different perspective of how I interact with people, particularly people who had preconceived notions of how, how they addressed me, if they misgendered me, 
etc. So there's a couple ways that I try to approach it, and that is, um, from my own perspective, is uh, can I do the job, right? And and letting that speak for itself. Um, can I do a job? Am I personable? Am I somebody that people would want to work with? Um, and that you know somebody would come and ask me for a question or just want to hang out after hours, you know that sort of thing. Um, and from there, I try to work in, you know, because I very much approach the work as like building relationships and building community. And that's something that often happens in the South is that uh, the South is very much community based and very much like family based. Uh, so when you go from there, um, from like a place of compassion and understanding, it's a little bit easier to start those conversations. Now, don't get me wrong, there will still be some haters out there. Um, and that's something that, you know, is a much more difficult to navigate as far as, you know, how do you set boundaries for yourself as well as your work, work environment. So I think in the rare, I hope rare off chances and events that um, you encounter somebody homophobic or transphobic or who's particularly hateful, um, that, they're, you know, you're able to have those conversations uh, with your staff where your staff is backing you up and that we, you know, are creating a space where everybody feels welcome here. Um, and if it's coming from within the staff, being able to navigate those conversations of, well, this is not a healthy work environment, um, and really being able to address those conversations if you feel so empowered. Now, I do acknowledge and recognize that for some people, it's a lot harder or a lot easier for others. So again, that's um, something I think it, it takes time to practice, time to navigate those conversations. I think also being able to navigate those conversations within uh, networks such as uh, AAVMC, I hope I got the acronym right, and others, um, you're able to discuss with colleagues, you know, how would you approach this? Because everybody has a different style of how they approach conversations and and sometimes even confrontation. Um, I totally agree, and I think I would add that um, if there's an opportunity, if you know anybody who's worked in one of those practices before, whether they're very large or very small practices, trying to reach out to them in advance um, before going out and just asking them a few questions, what was the environment like or the climate like. Um, I think Natalie brings a good point, too, about passing. I pass as a, a white man um, in society, even though I identify as trans. Um, but if, so I still have an F for female on my driver's license, so if I turn over any type of paperwork or anything, that automatically outs me. Um, but on my day-to-day, -day, when people just see me, they see me as a white man, um, and that does bring about privilege, um, tremendous amounts of privilege. But um, I think I grew up in Texas, um, and I did my undergrad work at Texas A&M, so I agree this community-based um, interaction is really important, or trying to find common understandings with people is really important. Um, what I also like to share um, with students is trying to have a lifeline of some sort. Um, and that lifeline can look like a lot of different things. Um, if you're in a community for just a few weeks, um, if you can find someone at your school that is a lifeline or a nearby university, right, um, that it could be a lifeline to someone to talk to. Uh, as a, I'm an anthropologist by training, and one thing that we have a lot of discussion about as queer anthropologists is a lot of us work abroad, and not we don't always work in the safest spaces, and so as queer anthropologists, how do we navigate that? And for us, um, because we're still attached to a university, having someone at a university that we can call or email if something does happen or if we're worried about something I think is important, so having that advocate on campus is key, if possible, but I know from your, your study, um, 
the LGBTQ student experience study, that's not always the case or it may not always feel possible to students. Um, so if they are in rural, rural areas, and I've learned this from working in Indiana, that there are typically organizations um, that are LGBTQ inclusive. Now, they may be a couple of hours away um, in terms of driving, but usually there is a, a PFLAG or some other type of organization that a person can reach out to even if it's not to find support in the workplace as kind of a survival mechanism of knowing I'm only going to be here for a few weeks or a month and a half or two months, at least there's somebody I can talk to about my experiences or vent to. Um, and because those people also know the local area, they may have some advice about how to get by and survive in the local area as well. That's great advice. That's great advice. So. Um, so as students are looking um, for future employment, what kinds of, I mean, certainly their career counselors are telling them, you know, all kinds of things and they're doing coaching on negotiation and benefits and um, we won't talk about veterinary starting salaries today, <laughs> but what kinds of things, um, frankly, should any student um, um, looking for an inclusive environment, work environment, um, talk about. And um, in our kind of pre-production chat, I think Aiden and I chatted um, about this um, values congruence, or was that, was that, was that yeah, our conversation? That, yeah. yeah, okay, <laughs> we've had a number of conversations. So, um, but, but also for, um, for allies as well as other individuals that just really want to work in um, an environment that is safe for all employees. Um, so, you know, what kinds of things might they look for um, when they go to interview? What kinds of questions might they ask that, um, you know, still makes them feel safe, but also elicits certain key pieces of information that will help them evaluate whether or not um, they really want to work there, even if they get an offer. Um, Natalie, do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? You can go first. I went first yeah. the first two times. Okay. Um, so I, th I think it can be challenging because sometimes if you ask a direct question, it may be outing yourself, right? And it may not be something you're ready to do because you're still trying to test out the waters. I have this great student who tells me um, he can sniff out a rainbow a mile away. And I really like that because he, what he means is he's looking for any sign or symbol of inclusion. So for him, it might be some sort of rainbow item, um, something as simple as that. But I think as far as questions when you're going to interview that you can ask is what kinds of uh, opportunities for community engagement do we do, right? Or does your organization do? So in Lafayette, Indiana, where I live, um, there's a local pride festival every summer. And a lot of the veterinary clinics or animal shelters do also participate in that. Um, and that's a really important piece for them. And so asking kind of just a broad open question about what kinds of community events do you um, support or interact with? You know, and, and it might be that they don't show up, but maybe they give a, a donation to those events um, to help make them happen. I also think that Google is often your friend uh, when you're looking for organizations. So just doing a quick Google search and seeing what pops up in the news. Um, have they been in the news for doing something really positive for LGBTQ inclusion or other inclusive movements? Or have they been in the news for doing something negative? Um, that I think can be very helpful. Also looking at their policies, trying to gather as much information as possible before you even get to that interview or get to that phone call about do they have an inclusive non-discrimination policy? 
and even asking that in an interview because that can be a really vague way of asking because non-discrimination policies may have different items included in them. And they might say, well, we don't cover gender identity and expression yet, but we're working on it. That can be a good sign of, of organizational progress. So I definitely uh, reflect what Aiden said, but I also think um, looking on the, like particularly for a veterinary, um, looking at the clinic and see what events that they may host or may attend as well. Um, shameless plug, I got my dog from a, a no-kill shelter that was owned by a lesbian. Uh, and I did not plan on it. What happened was I went to Pride and she brought um, all the dogs over and then she has certain vets that she goes to, right? Uh, so you know, maybe asking local organizations that are in the area that maybe no-kill shelters or shelters that help uh, animals, you know, uh, or or help foster animals, you know, where do you go to vets and 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 what, what was your experience like? Did you feel welcome? Um, because that, I think that's very telling as well. If if the people in the community who identify as LGBT feel welcome enough to use that particular vet, um, and there are other options, um, then that that that's really telling as well. So, um, so what kinds of things might they, might these students avoid, um, you know, and there's going to be really kind of, um, there's a continuum, I suppose, of, of comfort level um, and outness, right? And so, um, I mean, so it's going to be a bit different for everyone, but what kinds of things might these students think about avoiding, as well as, um, so why don't, uh, I'll pass that question um, to Natalie, as well as um, maybe Aiden, could you talk a little bit about um, what kinds of questions should um, future employers just simply not be asking? <laughs> Shouldn't they ask? And if they ask, run. <laughs> um, I think some of the questions that you definitely should not ask, um, are you married? Are you in a relationship? Um, you know, really, those, those are really personal questions because those questions also are included in equal opportunity laws and, and policies. You know, you can't be discriminated against based on your marital status or your family status uh, or your pregnancy status, right? Um, and LGBT kind of falls under that as well. Even if the, the city or the county doesn't have sexual orientation or gender identity and expression, those are some really um, hot button questions. Uh, so maybe some other like questions that would be more um, appropriate would be like, so what do you like to do in your free time? How do you de-stress? Um, you know, working in this clinic might be very stressful. We have a lot of high um, volume of really emergency situations. How do you de-stress? You know, uh, that sort of thing. So I think asking more general questions about, you know, how they do the work or how they do self-care is, is fine. Um, and then really invasive questions about their personal relationships or that sort of thing may May, particularly for LGBT people, if they are still not sure about the work environment, it may put them on edge. Yeah, I would add really quick in an interview process as an employer, if you're interviewing someone, um, think about not only questions to avoid, but things you want to share with the candidate um, in, that, in that meeting, right? If you have a, a piece of paper or packet of Here's all the inclusive practices we have, um, not just around sexual orientation or gender identity because you don't want to target people, but here's all the inclusive policies we have. Here's our benefits package. Um, 
those sorts of things. I, I think, or if you are involved in activities, events, those sorts of things, um, advertising and sharing that, you're so much more than just a workplace um, that you want people to feel really welcome and bring their whole lives in, I think is really important. Um, I think um, as far as organizations or things that might be alarming to students, I think your um, LGBTQ student experience study brought up some really good points about LGBTQ people are not homogenous. They all have different needs. For some people, it really does speak loudly to them if you have had gone undergone some sort of LGBTQ inclusiveness or cultural competency training as a whole unit. For other people, it doesn't seem to be such a big deal that they just want to live and exist. So I think as an LGBTQ identified person, it's very important to be self-reflective and know what you absolutely can't live without. So um, when I was applying to graduate schools, I had a laundry list of things I really wanted in that graduate school that were above and beyond the academic offering. So for me, I absolutely had to have a non-discrimination uh, non statement that was um, inclusive of gender identity and sexual orientation. Um, I really wanted trans-inclusive health insurance. We didn't have it at the time, but we do now. Um, so I had a list because I knew that if I didn't start out with a list, I might be tempted by a, a, a university that had a great academic program but maybe didn't feel very inclusive or didn't have accountability measures built in in case I experienced something negative. So I think having that list of like, I absolutely can't live without these inclusive policies, practices, etc., or this is what I want in a community, if I want a community, family field in my workplace, I want that. Write that down before you even start considering places you want to apply to. That's really good advice, really good advice. Um, so the next question that we have is um, uh, someone wants to know how has um, or has the Supreme Court ruling from last year on same-sex marriage, um, has it changed the way, do you think that it's changed the way that people look at um, employment and has it changed um, the way that um, has it changed the benefits landscape? Now I recognize that neither of you are, are HR people specifically, but um, I think that, that folks are kind of looking to say, well, we've we've made this huge stride. Um, what what might be the ripple effect? So um, I'm not an HR person. However, before moving to North Carolina, I worked uh, lived and worked in Jacksonville, Florida for nine years, and I worked a lot with the LGBT affinity groups with major companies in the area. Um, and then I also worked with a different institution um, back then. So it has changed the HR landscape. Um, at my last institution, it used to be that uh, if you were in a domestic partnership relationship of some sort, you had to provide a three pieces of documentation to prove that the two of you were a couple, right, out of a, a list of like seven, as opposed to if you were a heterosexual couple, you just pretty much walked up to the HR office and said, I'm married. Um, so that was a way to get uh, benefits. The other thing is the, the last um, institution I was at, they had it so that way um, the insurance company was not very welcoming to the domestic partnership, and, but, you know, they had no other choice because it was a state institution. So they said, you know, prove to us you have 50 same-sex couples and we'll go ahead and provide same-sex uh, partnership benefits. And we already knew from our climate survey that a lot of LGBT faculty staff did not feel comfortable openly identifying. Uh, so we, you know, we said we're not going to force our employees to do that. So what we did is we had to um, create a stipend for our employees and also gross up for taxes. So now that 
the Supreme Court has ruled that uh, there is marriage equality, I imagine all of those things are no longer there. Um, and but it, it still is the institutional barriers that need to catch up. You know, um, things such as the FAFSA. You know, the FAFSA you still have to write down mother's name, father's name, and we still we're we're getting students that have more same-sex parents. So we have to navigate, you know, well, whose name do we put down? Um, you know, and the answer to that is whoever filed the student on, on their own taxes, right, as a dependent. Uh, but, you know, having to ask five different people, how do you fill this out, is another hurdle, right? Um, so in some ways, marriage equality has changed the HR landscape, but I think it, there's still like these major massive companies and institutions and institutional barriers that you still are very slow to move because they're so big, right? Um, and this is kind of like a physics kind of thing, right? You need, you need so much force to make it happen. Um, I think the other thing is also, even though institutionally it is recognized, you still have to win the social battle. Um, and it's very interesting because uh, you know, I remember my ex who used to work as a medical assistant, um, one of her colleagues said, you know, before I met you and Natalie, I didn't think uh, LGBT people had the right to marry. But now that I've met both of you, I realize that you two are no different from any other heterosexual couple. You two are, you know, have your own little quirks and you argue about who takes out the trash and all these other things, right? So these are things that, you know, institutionally, yes, it's recognized, but culturally it's still a little bit of battle is particularly here in the south or particularly in rural areas that may not have any uh, or not realize that they've had interaction with LGBT communities. Um, I wanted to add to that too. Um, one thing that we're experiencing right now, so Purdue University had same-sex domestic partner benefits um, for quite some time um, before marriage equality was passed uh, and approved by the Supreme Court. So. One thing that um, happened as a result of that ruling, unfortunately, is that Purdue has decided to sundown domestic partner benefits. Um, and it's challenging to be in a state that, yes, there's marriage equality, but there's no um, state-level employment non-discrimination bills or laws that uh, prohibit employment discrimination on the basis of gender identity, gender expression, and sexual orientation. So what can happen here is that you get married on a Saturday to your same-sex partner and you go in, um, let's say that as a, my partner works at Purdue, but let's say if she didn't, right, um, if she worked off-campus somewhere else, so maybe she went to go add me to her benefits at her off-campus employer who doesn't have a, an inclusive non-discrimination policy, she could be fired, right, because nothing says you can you can't be fired for being married uh, to a, in a same-sex relationship, right? Um, and so there's a that's kind of intense for us right now because there are a lot of Purdue um, people who are in same-sex relationships and their partners don't work on campus, and so their partners may um, be open to employment discrimination, um, but at the same time, for people who are in same-sex relationships um, who want their partners on their benefits but don't want to get married because they're worried about employment non-discrimination, they really are in a tough position where it's either I get married and risk losing my partner losing their job, um, or we don't get married and we have to be on separate benefits um, for our own our own jobs. And so I think it's a tough place. We're not there yet um, on on all legal equality. Um, legal uh, employment non-discrimination is something I think about a lot. The other thing I like to point out now, though, is that now that marriage equality is the law of the land, that employers can't adver advertise same-sex domestic partner benefits necessarily as, as something that makes 
LGBTQ people want to come work for them, right? Um, so I think that's important. Um, but I do think what's great, what Natalie was talking about too, with um, the social equality piece is that organizations that have to acknowledge same-sex marriages now, while they may not while they may not have been prepared for it, I do think it is making them confront that LGBTQ people do already work in those companies. And so I think in some ways it is championing some social inclusion and equality um, as well. So marriage equality has definitely changed the landscape, some for the positive, some for the negative, but I do think it will help us also push through employment non-discrimination at a federal level and a state level as well. Um, you both raised some really important pieces um, with that last question that I don't think many of us think about. Um, we're so, you know, happy with the hashtags love wins that we really don't think about um, some other kind of companion um, pieces of um, legislation or the absence of um, other kinds of protection that then really leave individuals actually more exposed than they, they may have been in their state or local jurisdiction before. Um, one challenge that I think that our folks may also um, face is um, many of them are not going to go work for large corporations that offer those kinds of benefits. And so um, they may work at very small practices where there isn't a mandate to, um, you know, have insurance. They may have, um, they may or may not um, have access to um, the, the market through um, the American Affordable Care Act based on um, um, the size of the um, the company that they're working for, and so um, that maybe add a layer of complexity for, for folks that really need to kind of do some homework and, and add some things potentially to their list. It's kind of scary. <laughs> so um, so I, um, we have a number of other questions, but I wanted to take um, a bit of time um, Natalie, because um, the big question that, that we've got is what's going on in, in North Carolina? Um, and <laughs> um, what's going on in North Carolina? Um, people are very concerned. Um, fourth year students who are doing rotations are very concerned. Um, and, um, you know, particularly since they're going to places where um, they may be in pretty small environments. Small clinics, on the one hand, typically only have one bathroom, so mm -hmm. it's not an issue, right? right. Um, but, um, but, you know, um, so what's going on there? <laughs> Uh, you know, and I've been getting that question a lot. And, and as I said before, I just moved here from Florida. And you know it's bad when Florida gives you the side eye, right? So, <laughs> and before that, I used to live in Kansas. So, I, you know, I mean, my background is very, um, this is not something that followed me. Okay, so I want to preface that uh, when I first moved here in 2014, I moved to the city of Raleigh, and uh, the city of Raleigh already had sexual orientation for its non-discrimination policies for city employees. And then literally, like, it felt like almost the minute I moved here, they added went ahead and added gender identity and expression. Uh, then about a year ago, Wake County, so all of Wake County, that includes the city of Raleigh, and I think parts... Well, no, sorry. Some other major cities or suburbs uh, pass sexual orientation in their non-discrimination policies. So that said, the Triangle area and Charlotte and maybe um, 
Asheville, we're very progressive, and we're very inclusive, and we're very welcoming. Uh, what happened? Uh, what happened in North Carolina specifically is that Governor McCory is the former mayor of Charlotte, and uh, so when Charlotte passed. Um, particularly gender identity and expression in its non-discrimination policy. Um, it, it erased some issues with Governor McCory, and I don't know how else to say it without being disparaging, because I, I do work at a state institution, so I have to toe that very fragile line, right? Um, so that said, it's unfortunate that that is what is happening here in North Carolina. Um, businesses are pulling out. Um, major rock performers and, and rock stars are pulling out of their shows here in North Carolina. Um, there are other smaller districts and counties and cities that are uh, against this. Um, our student government here at NC State has voted uh, overwhelmingly that they do not support HB2. Um, other things that are happening in North Carolina <laughs> It makes it even more complex. So even before all this hubbub with HB2, we are a UNC system. So all the public schools are under the UNC system. So NC State, UNC Chapel Hill, UNC Charlotte, UNC Asheville, et cetera, et cetera. That said, uh, the president of the Board of Governors was forced to resign uh, without due cause or reason. He was forced to design, resign a couple years ago. And then uh, certain people within the Board of Governors made it a point to appoint Margaret Spellings, a former W um, appointee who has no experience with colleges and universities, to be the president of the Board of Governors, circumventing the entire interview process. So she has, uh, last Tuesday actually, last Tuesday said, uh, it was very contradictory. She released a statement saying uh, from the Board of Governors that the universities um, are, I don't know the exact words, but she basically said that the universities are required to adhere to the state law, um, but unless and that and to encourage students to use the bathroom of their assigned gender, um, unless it is a single stall, uh, gender neutral, gender inclusive space. Uh, I can tell you though that here at NC State, the Office for Institutional Equity and Diversity, which is our division that oversees the GLBT Center and various other departments, we are still adhering to our campus policy of sexual orientation and gender identity expression, and we are telling students to still use the restroom that they identify with. So there you have it. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's a very fine line that I have to, I wish I could go further and, and, you know, curse certain people out, but I can't. Sorry. <laughs> this is my job. <laughs> I wish we had the uh, Bill Maher has his like after after show <laughs> for his show. We should uh, have one of those. But um, there you have it, uh, straight from NC State. Um, I can tell you for um, for our academic community, if you have not heard, AAVMC did release a statement last week, um, and um, we will not be traveling to um, the state of North Carolina. Um, until um, we think that this has been resolved. Um, we have a document called Our Principles of Inclusion, um, and I will certainly link to that document um, on our website that um, we use pretty strong language that we confront such types of injustice um, and, and inequity. And so um, we 
sadly, almost a year to the day, <laughs> released a very similarly strongly worded um, missive um, with respect to Indiana. Um, and, um, and I anticipate that we will be releasing um, yet another um, I mean, these things are, are it's unfortunate, but, but we kind of like swap this word out and swap this new state in. Um, but I anticipate that we'll be releasing yet another fairly soon for um, Mississippi. So again, if you have not heard that we, um, the staff at AAVMC will not be traveling to North Carolina um, until such time as this has been resolved. So uh, there you go. <laughs> so. Um, what are, I have some more questions here, and I do know that we have folks that are um, watching live. In fact, it seems that there's a big watch party, um, apparently, across campus at NC State. Um, Dr. Alan Kennedy is over there with, I think, the last time. <laughs> he, um, I got a text from him with about 15 students, so hello, Dr. Kennedy and, and everybody there. And if you have questions, um, please drop them into our Facebook page, um, which you can find uh, on Facebook at AAVMC Diversity and Inclusion on Air. So, um, but we do still have a few other kinds of uh, questions here. So, um, so particularly for these kind of small organizations, what advice might you give to um, um, uh, someone who is feeling discriminated um, in the workplace, in their workplace, um, it's kind of become a hostile environment, um, specifically um, due to um, uh, hostility towards um, uh, um, around sexual orientation and gender identity. What, what, what might you advise individuals who are experiencing that to do, particularly in these kind of really small practices? Aiden, do you want to go first? Yeah, um, I can go first. So I, I think first and foremost, you have to document everything. Um, and that, it seems really cold to do that, right? Um, but I think document everything um, in case you do have to end up making a case. And sometimes I find that people out of their own ignorance don't know that they are being hostile or that they are creating a hostile work environment or being discriminatory. Um, so if you feel comfortable, I think finding a way to address it would be important. And how you address it, I think, is very dependent upon kind of the norms within the workplace or the norms within the relationship. So I think first and foremost, finding a way to address it if you can. If you can't, um, and you are fortunate enough to be in an organization that's large enough to have an HR professional part as part of that organization. If you feel comfortable reaching out to them and talking with them about your experiences and what they might have some suggestions for what to do. But I also think beyond that, part of being empowered is being knowledgeable about what um, resources are at your fingertips. So if there's a local organization in your area, um, that might be a local pride organization or LGBTQ organization. They might have some information on local city ordinances or state laws. Um, reaching out to um, groups like the ACLU or the Transgender Law Center or Lambda Legal um, to also get in touch and find out if, if they can provide some technical assistance, some guidance, uh, or provide some more resources. Uh, but beyond that, um, your organization may be um, may fall under the uh, Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and that stipulation around uh, sex discrimination has been extended out to LGBTQ folks. 
Um, and I, I sent you a link, Lisa, about that, so we can share that. Um, the, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission is the one that's really responsible for um, reviewing those Title VII cases. So you can reach out to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission for advice, resources, um, or file a complaint through them as well. And so I gave that link to Lisa um, that has a lot of information on it. So I think that's really good. If you're on a college campus, um, Title IX of the 1972 uh, educational amendments, the le latest federal guidance that I've seen came from April of 2015, and that has extended out Title IX uh, to LGBTQ students in specific cases, particularly around um, verbal harassment or other forms of harassment. So if you are still a student, whether you're on a college campus or if you are a staff member or faculty and you're on a college campus, Title IX also extends out um, to to people on, on any educational institution that receives federal dollars unless they've been exempt. Um, so I do think knowing your rights is really, really important because that gives you power um, to either change a situation or to get out of it. Um, so I think definitely what Aiden said. Um, I think also some other things to look at will probably be some uh, local nonprofit uh, legal organizations. Um, I know my last city I lived in, there is a um, not a land illegal, but something similar to land illegal, but that was for everybody uh, handling everything from eviction to employment discrimination, you name it. So <clears throat> checking in with uh, local. Um, legal experts who uh, may have been able to navigate this or have navigated it before. Um, also, I think, uh, you know, the last city I was in did not have an inclusive human rights ordinance. It did not have, and it failed twice, right? It failed in 2012 and it failed again in 2016. Um, so we had something uh, like a, a human rights commission for the city. Uh, and so being able to follow up with that to see if there's a way to get involved with that or to find people involved in that. Because um, I think, you know, being able to report it through the city commission um, has some sort of documentation and record that this is an issue because it was very interesting when cities don't have inclusive policies or counties don't have inclusive policies. It's very interesting, the people that come out of the woodwork that say, we don't need this because discrimination doesn't happen. And also, we still want to keep our policies the way it is so that we can discriminate. Like, literally not in those words, but something along those lines. It's like, this is very much an oxymoron right here. So um, being able to report it to uh, the City Human Rights Commission, if there is one, um, and then finding the local ACLU, um, as, as Aiden mentioned, and other local organizations would be really helpful as well. Great. Um, so we actually have um, a question um, from the live audience, and uh, Natalie has, has offered um, some initial comments, but uh, the question is, should we screen externship providers to ensure that they have a trans-friendly environment in the practice before sending students there? Um, and so, uh, Natalie, if you'll share what you wrote, and then Aiden, I'd love to hear your, your response as well. Right, so I think it would be highly encouraged, particularly for those who are trans and or gender non-conforming, because that is a huge factor, whether or not you feel safe, welcome, and included in uh, the work environment. Um, or for the students that may be interested in those externship opportunities. Um, the downside, though, is that I do see that it may limit opportunities, right? Um, so, I, you know, it's unfortunate that um, 
the, the monosexual identities such as lesbian, gay, and heterosexual are easy, like easier for the general populace to accept as opposed to the non-monosexual identities such as transgender and bisexual or pansexual because then people are just confused like what does that mean, right? Um, or who you're dating or how do you identify and, and that sort of thing. So um, it's unfortunate but I think you know, unfortunately, looking for clinics that at least include sexual orientation is a step in the right direction. And like, I like what Aiden said earlier is that um, asking, you know, are you thinking about having a trans-inclusive policy? If there are in the works for it, then that's a sign. If they're not in the works for it, if it's not on the radar, that's also another sign. Um, I think that, so if the school um, is going to screen externships rather than relying on the students to do it, right? Because if if I call up an organization as a trans-identified person and I say, are you trans-inclusive, right? Or I ask them a list of questions about what it means to be trans-inclusive, then if they know that I'm applying, then that may out me, right? And so it's very, I think it's great advocacy to have um, the school or another organization be able to screen those externships. I think working with students who are trans-identified and gender non-conforming, asking them what questions are pertinent what questions they might want answered because it's not enough to say are you trans inclusive because as Natalie was saying they may not even know what that means right and they may say yes because they think that's the right answer right um, so I think working with students to develop a list of questions or working with professional organizations or your local LGBTQ center to develop a list of questions would be really important but I think that you want to make sure that trans and gender nonconforming students have complete agency to decide where they want to go. So you shouldn't limit them to saying, well, you can only go to the trans-inclusive spaces, right, the trans-inclusive externships. They know what they're getting themselves into. You're just providing them more information, and they are very aware of their own skills in terms of how to navigate uninclusive spaces or any potential negativity. And I, I, I think it's also important to say that while we're talking a lot about law and policy and, and non-discrimination statements, just because an organization doesn't have one or a state doesn't have one, it doesn't mean that they're going to inherently be exclusive or unwelcoming. Um, policies and laws are very reactive, right? You use them usually when you're reacting to a negative situation. So I always encourage people who are looking for jobs or, or externships or, or whatever the case may be is to take that into consideration too um, and determine what your needs are. Um, but I do think that that advocacy of just trying to screen externships for a variety of inclusive measures would be really great. And it sends a message to those externship programs, this is our value, right? And if you want our great students to come there, you've got to be more inclusive of them. Um, you know, as as both of you were speaking, it, it occurred to me that this, um, that the development of, um, maybe a template for these types of questions um, would be a very good project um, for me and my office. I think that this is a resource um, that certainly AAVMC could provide to its member institutions in terms of, because I'm sure that, you know, there's a variety of ways of, of screening <laughs> individuals. So, I mean, or individual practices or these externship or preceptor sites. So, you know, we're assessing them um, for all kinds of things and the, not the least of which is their ability to evaluate students, um, I think that that there is certainly, I think, um, an ethical um, uh, uh, rationale for us also making sure that our colleges are um, um, making sure as best they can that they're sending students to inclusive um, spaces and certainly not just 
um, LGBT students, but um, any student um, that um, presents um, in their fourth year ready to go for additional training. Um, so, because some of these things, and, and um, we found this in our study, usually um, because of, um, and Natalie, you mentioned this earlier, this issue of intersectionality. Usually if there's one area of difference, um, it has friends that kind of come along for the ride. Um, and so, you know, you may have, um, um, gender be not gender non-conforming. You may also be a person of color. You may be a certain age. You're from a certain background, um, and all of these things are um, um, kind of create the set of lenses that we look through. Um, and we really want to make sure that students have good educational experiences, but have those experiences in places where, frankly, they're safe enough to learn. So. Alrighty, so uh, let's see. We have um, another question here. Uh, what can, uh, what, what is your advice for um, ally employers and coworkers um, to make these work environments more inclusive? Um, I think, you know, having more inclusive language, uh, if you're talking about your personal life, you know, state your partner or your spouse as opposed to, you know, husband or wife. Um, I think also, you know, having inclusions such as, you know, if there's a company picnic or if there's, you know, the doggy play date or whatever it be, uh, poker night, hanging out at the gym, that it's included. Um, I think one of the things that I used, when I briefly worked in IT, um, I asked my boss at one point, you know, is it okay if I wear a tie for the company picture? And he said, sure. You know, it's, <laughs> you know, having inclusive policies and, and being welcoming and things such as, you know, this is our dress code, as long as you, you know, adhere to this dress code, whatever gender it may be, um, that you're welcome here, right? Um, or that uh, other things as far as allies, um, you know, not making any, making it awkward in any way when, uh, you know, the LGBT person comes in and they put a picture of them and their partner on their desk, right? Or, uh, you know, that they, that them and their partner got married. Like, if you're going to throw a bridal shower for the heterosexual woman that's getting married, why not throw a bridal shower or whatever, marriage shower, however you want to call it, um, for the LGBT employee as well. Right. Um, so having it where it's universal and, and that, you know, accepted as one of not only accepted, but like, I guess in a way also celebrated, uh, because as I said, you know, working in a nonprofit LGBT organization and being one of my first like real jobs, it, it was it was not only accepted, but celebrated that, you know, if I wanted to cut my hair, go ahead and cut my hair, you know, uh, as long as it wasn't, you know, too distracting. Right. You know, so that's the thing. So, um you know, and, and as long as I wasn't showing skin, because I worked with youth, right? Uh, so, you know, adhering it to that way, it's still welcoming and that people can still explore gender expression, um, you know, also explore how, you know, to navigate these conversations of personal life and relationship where it's inclusive. I can't tell you how many times I feel uh, really included and welcoming when I talk to my heterosexual friends and colleagues and they refer to their um, husband or wife as their partner, right? Because then it tells me that it's okay to say partner. Other things would also be introducing yourself with gender pronouns. Um, so that way people have an understanding that you're welcoming to other gender identities. Um, I absolutely agree and I would add a few different things. Um, oftentimes we have internalized stereotypes around LGBTQ people that we're not even aware of. 
Um, and so trying to be self-reflective and become aware of those. So um, I've had friends who identify as LGBTQ who their supervisors ask them to stay late because they say, well, you don't have a family, right? Um, and they do have family, but maybe it's a it's a different conception of family, right? Or they have a very traditional conception of family, right, that they have to go home to, but the perception is that LGBTQ people can't have families, right? That's the stereotype. Or um, oftentimes we treat gay men as feminine and masculine and, and lesbian women as masculine, right? Um, and so those, those treatments often spill out in how we treat them, right? So there's this gay man best friend stereotype or that all gay men know how to decorate or love fashion or whatever the case may be. So be very cautious about when we reach out to our colleagues about what kinds of activities we ask them to do, right? And make sure that it's an activity that we know they're interested in, not just that we think they're stereotypically interested in. Um, as an ally, one of the best things you can do is amplify the voices of those around you. Don't speak for them, but amplify. So if you know you have an LGBTQ colleague who would really like um, trans-inclusive health insurance would really like some cultural competency training to come to the that office, right? Don't let them be the only one advocating for it. At, help them advocate for it as well. Tell them why it's important. Um, we're advocating for trans-inclusive health insurance. Um, we advocate on the basis of, yes, there's not thousands of trans people here, but if we are going to be the best university possible, we want to recruit the best people possible. We do not want any barriers to recruitment, including uh, exclusive health insurance, right? We always say at Purdue, what we make moves the world forward, right? So we want to make sure we're, we're hiring the best people and recruiting the best people to move the world forward. Um, so really just focusing on ways to advocate, um, making sure you've addressed your own internalized biases, um, and just being welcoming and inclusive of everyone and don't fixate on someone's identities. We are so much more than one identity as well. Great, thank you. So um, we are about to bring uh, our show for the evening to a close, but I wanted to give both of our guest speakers um, one last hurrah if you have any um, parting advice, guidance, cheers. <laughs> tears <laughs> that you might want to give um, to our listeners who are listening live um, or later. Um, uh, here's your chance. So I will actually give the floor to Aiden first um, and uh, Natalie second. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Um, I think one thing I'd like to share with, with allies in particular is don't, let, don't ever let your learning stop. Uh, always try to seek out new information um, and ways to be more supportive of LGBTQ people. Don't ever think that you're done. Um, and there's a myriad of both online resources that can be helpful, but as well, look at what's in your local area. Most LGBTQ centers on college campuses um, are willing to reach out and provide support and information, um, as, as well as training, or they'll point you to training resources. So seek those things out. Um, don't ever think that you're inclusive enough and quit trying. Always try to be more inclusive and, and keep reaching out and trying more things. I okay. Um, definitely reflecting on what Aiden said. I think also some other things would be, you know, listen to your gut as students who are interviewing and if there's certain microaggressions coming up or there's certain things that are just making you feel uncomfortable, listen to your gut, it's probably not. If, do you really want to be working there um, if you can avoid it, right? Um, because 
you know, there's there's been countless studies done about how when you work in an unhealthy environment or a stressful environment, it just it drains you. It completely drains you mentally, emotionally, and physically. Um, so um, I think you know, really listening to your gut about uh, certain work environments and s situations. I think other things would be finding your own support network, um, and also that you know, there's something to be said about living and working in areas that. Um, or smaller or as not as inclusive but want to be because that's where most of the work needs to happen. Um, it's very easy to, well, hypothetically, it's very easy to pick up and move to a big ma major city that already has these inclusive protections, but then who's left to, um, you know, do the work of the community, right? Uh, so not to say that's your burden and that's your burden to bear, but that is something to think about as well. Great, thank you. Thank you both, uh, Natalie and uh, Aiden. Thank you so much for taking time this evening um, to join us. This has been a wonderful show. I anticipate it will get a lot of views and listens. Uh, <laughs> wolves, no, no boiler up <laughs> from Purdue. Um, so thank you so much to both of you. Thank you for folks that um, have watched live tonight and submitted questions. Um, we will still take some questions for the next couple of days. You're free to email those questions to me at lgreenhill at aavmc.org and we will include them in the show notes. Um, there will be show notes following um, the, the, this episode on video at, at, uh, <laughs> at on YouTube. Um, I want to give a special thank you to William Willis, who is um, one of our production interns. He is producing this particular episode. This is his first time, and I just wanted to say he says boiler up. He will be uh, attending <laughs> Purdue's vet school this fall um, as a first-year student. So um, coming up, I just wanted to alert you in, in the month of May, Dr. Michael Blackwell, um, the Chief Veterinary Officer at um, HSUS will be joining us to talk about his career um, and with the Public Health Service as well as former Dean of the University of Tennessee. Um, he will be talking about his career but also access to veterinary medical care um, and increasing access to care. Um, and uh, we wanted to also let you know that the podcast is now available in an audio-only format. Thank you very much to our production interns, um, especially William. You can now uh, listen to Diversity and Inclusion on air on iTunes and Stitcher and SoundCloud. So um, we are now pushing that out um, um, so that this content is more widely available. So with that, I will wrap up this show for the evening. Thank you again to our guests and to our live viewers and our production team. And uh, we will see you next month. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.